Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to meet the most interesting and inspiring people living, working, and recreating along the American shorelines. Welcome to March. This is the month for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere where we can start to see the light at the end of this long, dark, wintry tunnel. Although, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I think winter gets a bad rap. Um, I think it's an incredibly beautiful season and it's an important one for many reasons in terms of ecological benefits and in terms of humans' energetic connection to the uh, cyclical nature of the seasons. And I say this because we live in a really fast-paced world that, especially for those of us in the United States, it's one that capitalizes on our time, our energy, our attention. So I view winter as an important reminder to slow down, to breathe, recharge and prepare for the busyness of spring and summer. This winter has also been really strange um, in the US. I think that, you know, like with half of the country, we've been experiencing snowstorm after snowstorm with deep freezes that roll into 50 degree days and back into snowstorms again. And then the other half of the country is experiencing these historic heat waves and winter not even feeling like winter at all with no respite from the heat and this is just a reminder like this is sort of where my head's been that this is just a reminder of its climate change in action you know this is not a far-off thing it's here it's now we're experiencing it in real time which is why i feel extra motivated to do the work that i do and grateful for any moment where i can get out and experience snow Because I'm not sure as, you know, the climate warms over the next 10, 20, 30 years, how long we'll really have snowy winters here in Maine, where I live. And um, I'm starting the show off this way because I have winter on the brain. This is fresh on my mind because right before sitting down to record, I was out for a walk with my dog and we got just about eight inches of snow yesterday. And the sun is out today, which creates the conditions for one of my favorite scenarios in the world, which is the first sunny day after a fresh snow. Um, In my opinion, it is one of the most beautiful sights and sensory experiences anyone can have. So I'm feeling especially grateful right now, not only for snow and winter, but also for the incredible guest here with me today. You all know that I have so much love and respect for everyone that I have on this show, but take that love and respect and multiply it times infinity because in addition to being a bright, hardworking change maker in the climate space, our paths and roots have overlapped for generations. We share ancestors and DNA. That's right. My guest today is a family member. In addition to being my cousin, Kiara Tringali serves as the Senior Government Relations Representative for the Wilderness Society, focused on landscape conservation and designation. Through this role, she advances legislative 
and administrative protections for priority lands to help achieve the goals of protecting 30% of U.S. lands and waters by 2030 and ensuring that all people benefit equitably from public lands. Prior to her role with the Wilderness Society, Kiara had several years of experience in the halls of government, serving as a legislative staffer in the Massachusetts State House and in the office of Congresswoman Shelley Pingree. Kiara, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jenna. What an intro. You really teed me up there. (laughs) That's because you're amazing. Like, you make my job easy. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that we know each other, but I'm going to assume that you are brand new to many of our listeners, and I always like to start off the show by getting to know the human behind the work. So will you take us on a little bit of a tour of your life path? So just things that come to mind when you think about pivotal moments that led you to where you are now. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that intro. Um, Well, as you said, you know, both of us grew up in Maine and I think uh, much like many Mainers and us and some of our other family members included, um, there was always a deep connection between us and the place that we grew up and the sort of climate and environment there. Um, I, you know, it's funny, your intro had me reflecting on the changes I've seen like in the environment in my in my life. I was thinking about some of the crazy winters when I grew up and how I didn't even see snow this year. Um, I don't live in Maine anymore. But, uh, you know, we grew up really connected to uh, the forest and the ocean and the snow and the sun and... Um, I think that that really uh, developed a a deep relationship between me and the environment. Um, But one that I didn't really know until I was a little older, I went to college in Massachusetts and um, was really interested immediately in working in politics and government, Um, really saw policy as a way to affect immediate change for for everyone and for, um, you know, the environment now, but uh, one of my focuses previously was on hunger and education policy. Um, but uh, after I after I graduated college, I worked in the Massachusetts legislature, like you said, and then for Congresswoman Pingree. And um, it was really when I worked for Congresswoman Pingree that I saw the pressing need um, to protect our environment and climate. Um, when I was working there, um, the congresswoman's really focused on sustainable agriculture, which really got me thinking about the policy levers involved in climate protections and all of the different ways that it touches down, not just in sort of the, um, you know, classic green, clean energy, or uh, even working in um, public lands policy like I do now, but, you know, our farms and our food, our tax system, um, it really touches down on everything. And so I knew when I left Congresswoman Pingree's office, that I wanted to do something um, related to environmental protections. Um, So now, like you said, I work at the Wilderness Society and um, my focus there is predominantly on lands protections and conservation conservation designations like national parks or wilderness areas. But I also do some policy reform for public lands, including um, responsible renewable energy deployment. Um, And I focus actually a lot on the way that mining uh, will have an impact on the future of our clean energy revolution. So um, that's a little about me. Yeah. And I mean, in addition to just, I feel like, you know, you travel quite a bit. We're, we're very fortunate with our family to have um, inherited sort of this, this 
communal summer home that we like to visit. And it's in this really beautiful place um, near Acadia National Park. Um, and then through your role with the Wilderness Society, I feel like, you know, you get to travel quite a bit and you see um, some really beautiful natural spaces and get to work to protect them. Um, I'm wondering, do you have like a favorite way to connect with nature? Like what is your sort of like go-to way to get outside and, and experience the sun on your skin and breathe in the fresh air? Yeah, great question. Well, I live in Washington, D.C. now, so um, I don't necessarily get to access, uh, you know, forested land or, or wild places often, um, not in my everyday life at least. Uh, but, you know, in the everyday, I love to take little walks around D.C., and D.C. is really awesome for being super walkable, and, um, you know, you can get around the city on foot, which has made it really easy for me to get the sun on my skin every day, which I really need. Um, but then like in terms of actually connecting with like nature, nature, um, I love to hike. Um, I really kind of got into that during the pandemic. Um, I didn't really grow up hiking. I grew up doing a lot of camping, which I love, but totally different way to connect. Um, in the last few years, I've had, uh, the pleasure of hiking, you know, personally and also professionally, which is really interesting. Like, all of our staff loves to connect with nature. And, you know, when we have these staff retreats, it's like you have uh, a group of people who all want to go hiking on these beautiful mountains. Last year, we went to Rocky Mountain National Park for our all staff retreat. And there were like 30 of us who went up the mountain together. And um, that's a really cool way to fold in both our personal love of the outdoors, but also professional. So um, hiking for sure. <laughs> yeah, total work perk. I've definitely experienced that. Like, you know, there's a lot in this space that I feel like um, can weigh pretty heavily, like mentally and emotionally on, you know, people that like you and me and everybody else that we work with that's like day in, day out, feel like we're like really fighting this, you know, it's like this uphill battle against like giants like oil and gas and um climate change and it, it can be really heavy, but there is this really wonderful perk with this work of being able occasionally to go outside and like really connect with the resource. Um, and there's so much joy in that for me. Also like joy in connecting because the work that I do is like heavily based in, in helping advocates develop and grow stronger and more empowered. And th even that like human connection, which I feel like we've sort of gotten so far away from when uh, COVID changed the world completely. And uh, a lot of our, our time and energy is spent on our screens and on computers. But I think that this is such an important conversation and um, time to sort of revisit, like, what does the outdoors mean to me? And like, where do I like to go? Like, what what makes me feel at home? Where can I feel like that stress is like melting off of my shoulders and I can be at ease for a moment? Because nature is so healing too. Um, and lately on the show, I feel like I've been asking people more about like the somatic experiences and like the physical, emotional experiences that they have in nature. Um, because I think it's really important to highlight and hear about. Um, like as I mentioned, because we are so called to our screens do you connect with that? Like when you go outdoors, like what is that experience like for you, like physically and emotionally? 
I so connect with that. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that I feel, I actually feel connection. Um, even if I'm just by myself on a hike, I feel connected to the outdoors. Um, like I said, I've really taken up uh, hiking during the pandemic and predominantly hike and backpack actually with my partner. He is really into birds, um, which I love for him, um, but uh, I am not as into birds as him. And so when he got really into birds, I started getting really into like plant identification. And like now I feel like when I walk out into nature, I'm like, oh, look at that cool plant. It does X, Y, Z thing. Or, you know, that's that's native to this area that we're in. Um, makes me feel really connected to the world around us. And um, I really cherish those times to kind of put my my work life on pause or put my city life on pause and go out into nature and just be at peace and feel relaxed. Um, you know, of course, I'm also thankful for things like all trails and like my phone so I don't get lost in the woods. But like, <laughs> I don't quite have that skill yet. But like, uh, you know, I just feel like it, it really has developed such a connection for me to both the work that I'm doing every day, but also the, um, the sort of nature around me. Yeah, I had a, a period of time, I've sort of gotten away from it now, but would love to revisit it of um, identifying like edible plants around me. Um, I think that is so cool when you're like out, you're just outside and you're like, there's so much around, like if I needed to be in a survival situation, like, like there are things all around us that are these lovely resources that we just were so used to like going to the grocery store. That's like a little bit of a tangent, but also I like while you're talking about um, your partner being like big team bird, I also connect with <laughs> that. That's like one of my favorite things about going outside even for walks is like I'm one of those people that like, um, you know, I'll hear like birds calling and I'll, I'll like whistle back at them and I'm like, is anybody <laughs> like watching me do this because it's probably really entertaining. But right before we started recording, I turned around and there's a window right behind me and there was a bluebird sitting like on the railing. Um, and it was just the juxtaposition between its, its like plumage and the white snow. I like screamed. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about cardinals in the winter. I like, I just want to like frame a picture of a cardinal next to the snow. Oh, the yeah. Cardinals thing. are the best. Um, so I know that you live in DC now and there are, you know, if you're, if you have a car access to like get outside of the city, there are a lot of great places to like, do like more of like rolling mountains hikes. I One of my favorite things about DC, honestly, is how much green space there is. I know that like their park system is pretty great. Um, but this is not necessarily limited to the DC area. I'm wondering if you have any favorite places to go or favorite places to spend time outside. Yeah. Well, I mean, you totally teed it up for me. I, um, I've never lived so close to uh, federal public land as I do here in DC, which is crazy because you think of federal public land as predominantly being out west, but the Appalachian Corridor has a ton of federal public land. Um, you know, we're about two and a half hours from Shenandoah National Park um, and the George Washington and Jefferson and Monongahela National Forests I recreate in quite a bit. Um, I have like a thing for rural Appalachia. I love it so much. Um, I work on a team at the Wilderness Society that actually does landscape level protection in Southern Appalachia. And it just like warms my heart when I get to spend time in those mountains. And 
um, feels very like cozy when I'm there and the culture is so interesting. Um, but also the, the rolling hills and mountains, like you said, are just breathtaking. Um, but you know, beyond Appalachia, um, obviously you and I have, I think probably for both of us, our connection to the environment really came from our shared family summer house, um, which is so funny to call it a summer house because nobody outside of Maine would ever call it a summer house. I like I I want listeners to know that this makes us sound like so bougie when we say summer house. We call it a camp. It is like if if you're like envisioning it, it looks like a cottage and this place was hand built by like uh Kiara's like grandfather, my grandfather, their father, and like all of us put in work to maintain and like physically build and take care of this place. So like, I I just want to clarify that because I feel like I sometimes get like self-conscious of like, oh, you know, people have like really fancy main summer homes here. And it's like <laughs> not like that at all. It's like we, it has so much character and like love and every single piece of it was like hand built by our family. (laughs) Yes. It makes me think of like when Bernie Sanders got a lot of criticism during, I think it was the 2020 election. Um, and everyone was like, Oh my God, he owns two homes. And every new Englander was like, yeah, so like he has a cabin like on the lake. Um, and it's just like a thing. Like our grandfather bartered for this property. Uh, it's, it's not an indicator of wealth. It's, like our our uh, grandparents and our parents, like they grew up spending all summer there. It was just like a place for the family to be together and and connect to nature. And I think that's like the core of it. Um, and my my branch of the family also has a cabin on the lake inland, which I know Jenny, you've been to a bunch. Um, I think that's another place that's really special for me. And that place feels a little bit more like connected to sort of the rural Appalachian or like rural mountain town experience. It's closer to like uh, Katahdin and um, it's a very different area than the ocean cabin that our family has. And then um, one of my other favorite places uh, is the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. I got to go there last summer on a work trip and um, I know we'll talk a little bit more about this Jenna later, but um, it's, it's such an interesting place I think it makes me think about my family's cabin, like I was just saying, that's near the lake, near Katahdin, um, and think about like what would have happened if all of those lakes hadn't been developed in Maine, um, and if some of them had been protected, um, and the Boundary Waters felt like the sort of like protected and undeveloped version of a lot of the sort of culture of Maine main lakes and um, mainers connecting with water. And that was a really special experience for me. I think that's a really beautiful and important thought too, because, you know, Maine has so many lakes and rivers um, that were created like during the last ice age when that big like, um, like ice sheet melted, it sort of like carved out. And it's even the same with our coast. Like we have this glacially carved coast. So it's lots of like rocks and we have all these little lakes and it's so beautiful, but um, public access is a real issue here because there's a lot of privatized land. And I think that that's where you all, and I know we'll talk about this in a few minutes when we get into the boundary waters, but it's like, that seems like a place where they like really did conservation right in terms of like, um, 
you know, not just putting like little camps all over the place, even though we have our own on, on the lakes and all of that. And I'm grateful for them too. But I like every human, we can hold like opposing <laughs> beliefs and feelings at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what's so funny is like, um, that lake uh, is a particularly interesting example to me of privatization. It actually was owned by the timber company and they, I feel like this has to be like a really New England thing, but they um, they owned the lake and half of it they logged and there's still a sawdust pile from where they logged. They literally call it like the sawdust pile. and It, it, it is. You can stand on it. It feels like- huge. It's gigantic and it feels like the feeling of like when you're at a playground and they have those squishy floors like for kids to bounce on. It feels like that, but it's on the water. It's crazy. My parents were just talking about snowmobiling last weekend up there and they made specific mention of snowmobiling to the pile. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, yeah, so it's really – it's just so interesting. The the other half, you know, the not sawdust pile half of the lake has – has a lot of camps and cabins on it. And I learned a few years ago that the um, timber company leased 100 year leases on that side of the lake to locals and said, you can, you know, lease this land from us and buy your cabin. And in the eighties, I think it was when the timber company went under, they sold the leases and my family was smart enough to gobble up a couple of them. And we own that area now, but you know, that was that was a really interesting form of an extractive economy that that whole recreation based economy up there, whether it's people being there in the summer for swimming and being at their cabins or snowmobiling like your parents like that economy only came about because the timber company had been extracting the natural resource from the area, which is just like fascinating. It is incredibly fascinating being up there. So for listeners, I'm like, here are a couple of fun facts. Um, uh, the Maine is the most heavily forested state in the United States. So timber is, you know, whether it's like mill towns that have come and gone, you see these old remnants of like what used to be really booming, beautiful towns that now are, um, a lot of them are, I don't want to like misspeak, but I feel like a lot of them have sort of fallen on economic hardship and you um, see that there's this, there's just, there's this opportunity there for them to create new um, businesses and revitalize these places. And then also like just the, the impact and the deep history that timber companies have um, on the state, especially up in that Katahdin area. And so also for listener, listeners, I feel like a lot of people know Mount Katahdin. If you don't, it's the tallest mountain in the state of Maine. And it's also, depending on which way you're going, either the beginning or the end of the Appalachian Trail. So I love that Kiara brought up the Appalachian Trail and the Appalachian Mountains because they are, I feel like in terms of the eastern United States or like when I was living in Maryland and would you like go out west and visit, it's sort of this like geographic through line that like connects you to home. Like, you know, you're in the mid-Atlantic now in DC or when I was down there, it's like, oh, I'm visiting this incredibly beautiful mountain range that is, it's a very long path home, but like it's just this like little piece of Maine. It always felt like it was it was never really that far away because you have these these features that 
go all the way from Maine to Georgia. And um, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but I. <laughs> no, you're so right. You're so right. I mean, what's really cool too is like, um, so species wise, like when you get to the tops of really high mountains in places like Georgia and the Carolinas, they have the same species as um, the lower uh, elevation mountains in Maine. So if you get to a certain point, like in some of these uh, like mid-Atlantic mountains, it literally looks like you're hiking on the spruce and granite forest uh, mountains in Maine. And so sometimes I have these moments where I'm like eating wild blueberries at the top of a mountain in Virginia. And I'm like, where am I again? Yeah. It's like a little piece of home. It's, it's, I guess that's my little tangent there was just like, um, that's how my brain works, I guess. Like I'm, I'll be in a place or like, um, you know, like up, I've visited like up in like Newfoundland and Canada and you can see like when everything was Pangea or like if you go over to Europe and it's like Ireland, Scotland, like you can see how all interconnected it is. And they're like these reminders around us all the time of like the planet is just like it's one. And I know that makes me sound like very like hippie, like woo woo, but like it's true. (laughs) No, you're right. You're right. I mean, there are some species in uh, the like Southern Appalachian region, specifically thinking of some of like the salamanders that are only found and like wild ginger is another one. They're only found in Southern Appalachia and – um, some of the mountains in China, because back in the day, well, back in the day, it makes me sound like that was like 50 years ago, like back, like millions of years ago, they were all together and the species got broken up by, you know, tectonic plates shifting and all of that. So you're a hundred percent right. And I'm actually going to Scotland later this year and I'm very excited. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like also like over time hosting this show, I feel like there are certain questions that I realize I really enjoy asking all of my guests. Like this is almost turned into sort of like how the land is a little bit of like a experiment in its own way where you're like, oh, I'm in the mid-Atlantic, but like this is familiar to home. Um, There are certain questions that I feel like have become this like social experiment for me because they're sort of, they fit under this like broader umbrella. So when we talk about climate, Like, that's such a broad thing, and there's so many issues that fit within that umbrella of climate. Um, And so this question sort of – I just find it – it's, like, seems pretty simple, but it's, like, really interesting to me. So um, when you think about a healthy planet or, like, a healthy climate, um, what comes to mind for you? Like, what does a healthy planet mean or look like to you? It's a great question. I think the through line for me is like everyone has the ability to thrive. Um, Everyone should have access to clean air, clean water, of course, but also like access to the outdoors, access to healthy food, you know, living a life that's free of like toxic chemicals and pollution, like, um, and being able to be in the place that they love or are connected to and not being forced out due to climate change. And that's something I think about a lot. I think I read something once that said, um, you know, in 50 or 70 years, uh, Maine will have the same sort of weather patterns as Washington, D.C. And that really took my breath away. Um, I can't imagine what D.C. will be like in 50 to 70 years, right? So it's for me, it's like, yeah, exactly. Um, swampy. Um, but you know, it's like, I think 
having the um, choice to be in the place that you feel connected to is so important. And we're already seeing people who are what I would consider to be climate refugees, um, particularly in, in the global South, but uh, who are being forced out of their homes due to conflict over things like air, water, and food. Um, or they they don't have the sovereignty to grow the food that, that powers them in that region because the climate has changed so much that it's no longer um, it's no longer a possibility. And I think, Jenna, it really gets to the point that you made earlier. Like, climate change is not a thing that's going to happen in the future. It's already happening, and it has been happening. Um, so as much as we can... We should be creating systems that do allow people to thrive. Absolutely. I feel like I couldn't have said it better myself. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I feel like I try to kind of regularly point out the way that I'm seeing climate changing around me is to hopefully spark that curiosity and those observations in others where, um, yes, I think we we think about it a lot and see it a lot because we're having more and more increasing like natural disaster. I, I don't even really like that word anymore, natural disasters, but like climate um, induced disasters and uh, climate change isn't isn't always that. It's happening around us all the time in ways that we can see each and every day. And I think that we can all sort of be our own observers and researchers in this in noticing like our own surroundings and how it's changing. Um, and, you know, I know I mentioned Maine a little bit with, and like, so did you with thinking about like when we were younger growing up here, like we'd have winters where the snowbanks would be like well over our heads and like over like my dad's head and my dad's like six, four. And it's like, now I consider like this snowstorm that we just got to be like a lot of snow for Southern Maine. Like right now on the ground, we probably have like a foot and a half. Um, and we're like, wow, look at all that snow. But if you think about over time, like it's not really historically a lot of snow. And um, so I'm just, I'd love to hear your take on that. Like whether it's Maine or if it's what you're noticing in DC or in your own neighborhood, like how are you noticing climate changing around you? Yeah, I mean, the first one is absolutely what you just said about winters in Maine. Not only the snow, but, and, and we're so lucky in Maine that we're not relying on the snowpack for our water sources. Um, so, and that was something that I really, uh, that was really interesting for me to learn about and see my colleagues' perspectives on when I traveled out west um, for work. Um, but uh, the temperature, so like, obviously we have a lot of, ice-based activities, but also, like, um, native people in Maine used to act, used to ice fish. That's not a, a new um, way of either subsistence or recreation in Maine. And um, in a lot of places, there's not enough ice for you to safely go out onto the lake anymore. Um, so that's one of the ways for sure. And then, like, you know, here in D.C., we didn't really ever have winter this year. Um, my heaviest uh, sweater sat on the shelf in my closet and like it's been it is sad I love a good sweater I know <laughs> I mean I still found ways to wear them don't worry um but uh you know we just skipped the really cold weather and um 
we never really got snow. Um, it's really interesting because we had a historically early cherry blossom bloom here. We've already, I think, hit peak. They were declaring peak today at 11, I think. Um, and yeah. usually that happens think about in all April. Of the April! That planned their vacations for April. And they're, <laughs> I mean, DC in April is still lovely, but it's like people flock to DC for those cherry blossoms and. I mean, maybe that's a nice thing for, like, locals. I'm trying to find a silver lining. I don't know. Yeah. Like, you all got them to yourselves a little bit, even if it's terrifying. Yeah, I know. I was, like, trying to walk around and enjoy it, and instead I was, like, stressed about it. But it- <laughs> It's, like, existential dread, even though they're beautiful. Exactly. And, like, our uh, cherry blossoms are the earliest bloomers here. Um But I was just wa- outside walking this morning, and the magnolia tree on the end of my street is, like, not just a little bit in bloom, it's fully in bloom. And it's the first day of March. So um, that's a little stressful. Uh, But and like, it snowed for the first time on Saturday, and there were open cherry blossom trees with snow on them, which was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. I was talking to a colleague of mine uh, last week, when we were we were in the middle of a blizzard, it was really frigid cold, we were getting a bunch of snow. And my colleague is based in DC. And he's like, it's 80 degrees here. And he's he was uh, coming up for the main fisherman's forum. So he was kind of talking about what the weather was going to be like. And I was like, get out all of your winter clothing. Because it's just interesting because Maine and D.C. are not that far apart. Um, and there was, there's just like this climate line where we've been fairly cold and, and had a lot of rain and snow. And y'all have been basically just summer year round. Mm-hmm. Yep. So now I want to pivot to talking a little bit more about your like professional experience, um, starting with just some curiosity I have about like when you were you when you were in school, it, did you have like I think you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, like did you have the foresight that you were really interested in going into government? Like I feel like yes, but I don't want to answer for you. But I feel like in my experience of just knowing you for so long, it kind of felt like you maybe were always interested in going into government or like what drew you to that path? Um, well, I was like right at the right age when the 2012 campaign was happening, the 2012 presidential election. And I feel like I was really interested in seeing the impact of policy on people Um, I remember very vividly, like the first time that I realized that was around um, same-sex marriage and um, marriage protections. And there was a ballot question, I think it was on the 2012 ballot in Maine, about um, codification of same-sex marriage in Maine. Um, So I remember being like, wow, government has an impact on people. But um, when I went to college, it was for... um, I predominantly thought I wanted to work on campaigns, but after doing some campaign work in college, I realized a couple of things. One, it's a really unsustainable um, pace. So it's like, go, 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 all hands on deck for, you know, nine months or a year. And then there's nothing. Um, So it feels like a lot of like push and pull. And then the other thing was, I felt like, the way that I could better serve the world and make like government work better for people um, was to be actually in government and doing the legislation and policy rather than uh, 
helping to elect the people who are going to do that. So that was that was where that pivot happened. Yeah. Will you talk a little bit more about your experience working as a legislative staffer in the Massachusetts State House? So like I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and and they are aware that, you know, like members of Congress, whether it's state or federal, like they have staff, but I feel like a lot of people are probably like, what do they do? Like what issues did you work on? Will you kind of just talk more about your experience there? Yeah. So um, when I worked at the state house, I worked for a younger member who had just been elected in a special election and Massachusetts is, I mean, every state does their state legislature differently, but Massachusetts is a full-time legislature. So um, the members like that's in theory, their full-time job, they're in all year doing some policy work. And then um, the, the sort of rank and file members all get one staffer. So one member, one staffer. So anything you can think that would go through a legislative office went through ours, not just drafting policy or meeting with um, advocacy groups, but also uh, doing all of his scheduling and his constituent services and um, communications and uh, everything under the sun in a legislative office. Um, and I feel like the, the biggest thing for me was really seeing for the first time how laws actually get passed and how legislation is created and seeing what tools and tricks were available to us to use to make people's lives better. But also, um, it was just way different than I thought. I mean, there were just so many opportunities for things to fall through the cracks. Um, We worked predominantly on education and hunger policy. I wasn't really doing environmental policy at that point. And I remember we had a, a child nutrition bill And this was a bill that had been like, you know, well vetted and developed with a large stakeholder group. And my boss was on the education committee. And I remember we had a hearing on it and they just immediately sent the bill to study, which means it isn't going anywhere that Congress or that session. It really just means like your bill died and you got to try again next year. And I remember we were like, what the hell happened? Like nobody gave us any like indication it was going to go that way. And for me, that was the first moment where I was like, this is way tougher than I thought it was. it's going to be. Um, and it, it takes years and sometimes decades to get pieces of legislation pushed through. Yeah. I mean, honestly, um, just from like sitting on the side of the table that I sit as an advocate who works with a lot of people that, you know, work in government there are things that I started working on almost a decade ago that's like there are pieces of it now that are just getting into things or just passing. And it's that's where like celebrating small wins is so important for like progress and mental health, but also like realizing that if you're in this, no matter if you're like working in government or on the advocate side, this is a long game. Like you're in this thing and it's going to take like generations of people to keep pushing for progress. And it's like, whatever I can make as me, Jenna advocate for ocean issues, like what can I do in my time here? And like big wins, small wins, that's great. But like, I think it's just the framing for people listening that like, if you're looking to get into this field or just want to like, feel like you're being seen and heard, like, yeah, 
big, big time, long game. <laughs> um, I have the same curiosities for you about um, your time in Congresswoman Pingree's office. Like, will you talk a little bit more about that experience and the issues that you were working on there? Yeah, I mean, it was completely different. Um, I will say, like, I think in state government, um, because the size is so much smaller, like you can have a more direct impact more quickly, even though it might take a long time for your legislation to pass, things kind of get implemented more quickly. Um, You know, my boss used to run into his constituents in the grocery store. Like you are so um, close to the issues that you're working on. Um, And I think in the, in the national side of things, the pace is just so different. Um, You know, everyone is watching. You're so responsive to sort of the issue du jour, like you're responsive to these national um, changes or like whatever the headline is in the news. Um, You know, in my case, I was there from April, 2019 until July, 2021. So think about that moment, right? It was like Trump uh, impeachment was like six weeks after I started and um, COVID took up the majority of the time that I was there. I feel like national level policy was so much more removed from actual people's lives, even though we all knew like the implications of the work that we were doing on people's lives. I feel like I was constantly looking for the individual who was like benefiting from or suffering from certain policies or changes or what have you. Um, The other thing is like, there's this thought that nothing happens in government, but the pace is just grueling because there's so much going on. It just takes a lot more for something to actually get like signed into law or enacted or implemented or for people to get their checks or whatever it is. Right. And so like the, the pace of the national level stuff was absolutely insane. We were always on and because it was all nationalized, it felt like we were constantly responding to whatever was, was going on across the country. Yeah. I also, I feel like I, frequently am telling people that, you know, are a part of the Healthy Ocean Coalition community, especially because, you know, a couple of times a year we host these advocacy trainings and we sort of walk through the ins and outs of like how to be an advocate and an effective advocate. And a big piece of that, because we focus on federal policy and legislation is talking about like relationships with members of Congress and their staff. And I'm like, the staff, though, like Hill staff work harder than like anyone or like most people. <laughs> like honestly, there is I have so much respect for people that work on the hill because um like just the pacing and the issues and the like fires that are popping up everywhere and just, you know, feeling probably underappreciated a lot of the time, underpaid a lot of the time. Like everyone seems to be like, no matter what you do, someone's angry at you. And so like, I always try to paint that picture of like, these are human beings first and foremost. Like when you're advocating to an office, um, it's really like two things. Like never forget that you're talking to another human and like kindness goes a really long way. Um, And then also you like... I feel like some people get very fixated on meeting with the member themselves. Like when they go in to have a meeting at an office or they're on Capitol Hill or even if they call. And I'm always like, I feel like the sweet spot like is really talking to 
the person on their staff that is like focused on these issues because that's where you're going to have like the really great conversations. The person's going to really know their stuff. Um, and so I'm like, yes, like the congressperson is is great. I think a lot of times for like, like photo ops and stuff like that and like not to like diminish what they do but I'm like there's there's this like I think uh view of if I get a meeting and it's not with the member then like that's rude to me and I'm like actually I think it's not like like you want to be talking to the staff yeah I fully agree with that I think that that's the first place that people get tripped up on advocacy um but you're right I mean one of the things that I I've really prioritized thinking about now that I'm kind of like you on the advocate side um, is that member staff. So a a house of representative staff usually has between 16 and 18 staffers. Um, So for the state of Maine, we have two senators and two representatives. So you have um, 18 people who are working on half of the state in that case. And, uh, about half of those 18 people are working in the district office on stuff like constituent services. So helping um, you go through the cumbersome immigration process or getting a passport or something like that. But also you have the other half who are in DC. So you have about six or eight people who are handling every bucket of policy. Um, and these portfolios are enormous. Obviously, the, the committees that your boss is on dictate where that that person's time will be sort of best focused, but you still have to be able to, to speak the language for every issue. Um, so I do, I think that that's a great point. These staffers, A, are so overworked and overburdened and underpaid. Um, that's why you see a lot of younger staffers, like, those are the types of people who can work 80 hours a week for a small amount of money. Um, beyond that, you know, you may have kids or other family members or financial constraints to think about. And so it gets harder. Um, but then the other thing is like, you know, exactly what you were saying. These are the people who are tracking what's going on every single day. These are the people who are talking to um, the committees about passing their bills or are preparing um, by meeting with advocates and understanding the issue from every side Um, Those are the people who have the most holistic view. And even if you hear the member say something really good, I can almost guarantee that there is a staff member behind that um, who helped prepare them for that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So what, um, what influenced you to make the transition to nonprofit work and um, how are you liking it so far? Well, I wanted to focus more on, on advocacy around a specific issue and really dig deeper. Um, I knew when I left Rep. Pingree's office that I wanted to focus more on climate and sustainability, um, partially because she did so much work in sustainable agriculture, but she also became the chair of a committee um, that helps to dictate funding for um, the Interior Department while I was working for her. And the Interior Department has a lot of power over oceans and lands and uh, some of these like immediate sort of like conservation priorities. And that was where I really realized, you know, the power of something like our public lands or waters to, um, not only be there for recreating and enjoying, but also sort of be there to help solve the climate crisis. Um, and I became really interested when I was working for her on those issues, um, and did a lot of, uh, 
research and messaging around the the way that conservation was being funded or being played out in the national policy space and decided I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to really kind of focus in on on the environmental side of things. So um, transitioned to the nonprofit space and I really love it. I love the focus. Um, I love working on public lands issues. I, I think my favorite part is that I get to sort of bridge this gap between local constituents and stakeholders, people who are, you know, living and recreating and working in these places and want to protect them because they see the impacts that are happening on the ground. And then I also get to bring their values to Capitol Hill and like speak the language of the policymakers and understand what's going on and know how to take advantage of what's going on for those people who want to protect these places. Um, I really like being in both of those spaces. Yeah. So will you tell me more about the Wilderness Society and your specific role there? So the Wilderness Society is a public lands protection organization. Um, it's beyond just the concept of wilderness. So the, you know, wilderness is a, is a conservation designation. Um, but we don't just do wilderness. Um, we do a lot of uh, advocacy that even falls outside of sort of the traditional, like, designate a national park space too. Um, you know, a lot of our priorities um, include like equitable access to public lands, um, net zero public lands. As you know, Jenna, like 20% of uh, US emissions actually come from our public lands, which was a shocking number to me when I started at the Wilderness Society. And then we are working on an initiative that's called 30 by 30, which is um, an initiative that would protect 30% of lands and waters in the United States by 2030 folds in more broadly to a international effort to do the same. Um, and this is in part to use our public lands and our environment and the physical spaces in our environment to help fight climate change, whether that's um, helping to address the biodiversity crisis by providing connectivity for plants and animals or expanding access for people to public lands and the outdoors um, or doing something like responsibly deploying renewable energy. Um, so as an organization, you know, the concept of engaging on, on public lands issues has really broadened as our work as a nation has broadened on, uh, fighting climate change. Yeah. And, you know, 30 by 30, like my ears perk up when I hear that, because that's a big issue that we work on through, um, the healthy ocean coalition. And it's sort of this, uh, this other crossover place where, uh, Kiara's work and mine is every now and then I'll see like an email come through about like an advocacy campaign. And I'm like, hee hee, like I know her. <laughs> I get like really excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, 30 by 30 is very important. I know like a lot of people are working on it. Um, we've definitely talked about it on the show before. And um, the, the thing I'll add about it is like, just for listeners, is like scientifically um, sort of the motivator behind this campaign is that um, like the science behind protected areas is showing like we need to protect at least 30% of our lands and waters globally in order to like basically avoid catastrophic climate impacts and like maintain the benefits that we get from nature and like you know with that 30 percent um at least the way that we view it i know that this is a larger conversation we probably have like a whole episode about but like the way we view it through the healthy ocean coalition 
um, in terms of like marine protected areas is those are like no take zones. So like no fishing, no extractive uses. Like those are places where you just let nature do what nature does best and heal and recharge and regenerate. Um, And that 30% is just a baseline. Like that is the very least like that we need to be protecting. Um, So it's a big lift. It's a big campaign. Like it spans beyond the work that Kiara and I do. Um, And just wanted to specifically call that out because I know um, a lot of listeners are probably interested in learning more about it. So if you were to like Google 30 by 30 or the 30 by 30 campaign, um, like you'll definitely get a lot of really helpful information about that. Um, And it's a, you know, it's a, it's an initiative that really excites me. Um, And I'm just, I mean, I'm interested, Kiara, to hear more about like some of the projects you're working on. I think, you know, we sort of teased the Boundary Waters conversation a little bit. Like um, I'd love to hear more about like, there are there certain things that you're working on that you're particularly proud of or want to highlight? Um, and I'll specifically request you talk about the Boundary Waters a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I'm lucky my specific portfolio focusing sort of on these land designations means that I work a lot in place. Um, so I work, like I said earlier, in the Southern Appalachian region. I work in Montana. I work, um, I do some work in Colorado. I've been working to protect the Grand Canyon from um, uranium pollution, which is a really cool campaign. Um, but yeah, one of the ones that's not only really amazing and cool, but um, has been really successful, like you mentioned, is the Boundary Waters, which is in northern Minnesota. Um, I'm sure there are listeners out there who have heard of the Boundary Waters. It is actually America's most visited wilderness area um, with, I think it's more than 160,000 visitors every year, which is amazing. Um, But uh, it's a series of interconnected waterways, water bodies and land. Um, I have heard it best described as like an inland sea. Um, It's the Boundary Waters itself is a, it's called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Um, that itself is the, is a 1 million acre protected area, but it's actually a part of a broader um, 4 million acre protected ecosystem with um, Voyagers National Park, the Quetico uh, Canadian side uh, wilderness, and then some other areas in there as well. Um it's an amazing place. Like I mentioned earlier, I had the chance to visit it earlier this year. And um, we have been working to uh, protect the area from mine pollution. Um, there was a company that inherited some um, leases uh, for mining leases um, that wanted to install a sulfide or copper mine at the headwaters of the Boundary Waters. And um, you know, I could probably spend the next hour talking just about this campaign <laughs> and just about, um, you know, mine pollution. Um, but in this specific instance, um, this was not a safe mine. And I could talk a lot about why many mines are not safe. Um, but the, the part I'll point out here is that it was scientifically proven that it would have um, affected the water quality um, of the area. And would have created acid mine drainage, which would have um, had severe impacts on 
the water and the wildlife, um, you know, the water is so clean there that I drank the lake water without filtering it last year, um, it, which is amazing. I was like dipping my Nalgene bottle into the water off of the canoe. Um, and there's also, you know, lots of fish there. Um, one of the other really important parts about this area is um, this is part of the, I think it's the 1852 um, ceded territory of the Ojibwe people, um, who are the native folks who um, were in sort of the upper Midwest. Um, and they um, retain hunting and gathering rights there. Um, and there's one specific substance, wild rice, um, which would, it has a very specific ecosystem in which it can grow. Um, and the Ojibwe people um, are connected very deeply to wild rice. It's actually a part of sort of their, um, you know, uh, connection to the place. They believe that their creator told them to go to the place where the, the uh, food grows on the water. And that's how they ended up there. Um, and so some of the Great Lakes used to have wild rice and some don't have it anymore because of adverse ecological impacts, but the Boundary Waters does still have it. Um, so anyway, that was a long tangent of, you know, talking about, uh, the, this mine, which would have had, um, it would have been right at the headwaters of the boundary waters, this, you know, lake-based, uh, ecosystem, water-based ecosystem, um, and could have polluted all the way up into Canada. So we got through decades of advocacy, uh, help to, um, secure an, an administrative protection called a mineral withdrawal from the Biden administration, which was um, finalized about a month ago and protects the boundary waters for the next 20 years. So we have, um, we can breathe easy, but uh, the, the next part becomes permanently protecting this very important ecosystem. Right. It's like circling back to, I mean, I even consider that a big win and I'm like so appreciative of the work that like every single person for like generations has been doing to protect these places. Um, but it's like, take a moment to celebrate that and then like put our heads back down and keep going to get the like permanent protections on it. Um, so if someone's listening to this and they want to learn more and get involved, um, how might they do that? How might they follow along with the work that you're doing? Well, I'm horrible about promoting my own work. <laughs> um, so uh, You're great about promoting books. Though. Yeah, I'm a big reader. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, the, the Wilderness Society, I have to give a shout out to our amazing um, communications team, specifically our digital team. They have so many resources on our website about things like the Boundary Waters, but other campaigns that we're working on as well across the United States. So... Um, you know, definitely check out wilderness.org. There's lots there. Follow us on social media. Um, and then I'll also say, you know, engaging with some of these um, local conservation efforts in your community. I think that's really where the power is and becoming um, an advocate for the places around you and for a healthier climate as a result of it. I think that's really where we can make the most difference. Heck yeah. Join the Healthy Ocean Coalition. We can help with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to wrap up every show, I do a little bit of a lightning round where I ask all my guests the same series of questions. Um, starting with, what do you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we're facing? Oh my gosh. All of them. Um, I, uh, I'm i going to kind of go on a little bit of a 
a, a different angle here, but one of the things that I work on beyond sort of the land designations is, as I mentioned, um, responsible renewable energy deployment. And um, one of those issues is um, the sourcing of some of the minerals and component parts for things that we're going to need for renewable energy transition. Let's think about EVs, like all of the stuff that's in your EV battery or your hybrid battery. Um those are pieces of, those are minerals that come from somewhere, right? They have to be mined. Um, same thing for like your phone battery. Um, and one of the things I've been working on is making sure that we're protecting both communities and the environment through a strong sort of community input process um, that allows communities to say, um, if they support a mining project near them, um, mining can be really toxic and can have a lot of pollution and um, I think balancing our need to quickly deploy some of these renewable technologies while also making sure we're not repeating the mistakes of the past um, energy transitions that we've had. Like a great example is you know, natural gas was supposed to be a bridge fuel, but we've been using it for a long time and it's still been extractive in communities. I don't want the same thing to happen when we're transitioning to a battery-based economy and we need to mine for the materials that come um, to power those batteries. Um, so that's something I've been working on a lot. And I think it's something most people don't know about. And I'm trying to get individuals and policymakers to think about sort of all of the downstream effects of our behavior um, and of consumption generally. And what are you energized about moving forward? I am really energized that there seems to be sort of a critical mass of Americans who think that climate change is an existential threat and are willing to do something about it. And this last one is kind of a two-part question. You can answer it however feels right to you, um, whether it's like one part or the other part, it's up to you. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or what advice do you have for our listeners? Probably the best piece of advice I've ever been given is that working in these spaces requires balance. Um, a little plug for self-care, like you can't properly engage in advocacy and policy change without first taking care of yourself. And I would say that that's probably generally true for anything. But, um, you know, I think uh, back to what we were talking about with like our connection to nature earlier, I sometimes in the middle of a very busy campaign or push on a piece of legislation, I need to take a break and go outside or take a day off and go hike a mountain. And um, that's the best thing because I get to fill my cup and then I get to devote myself more fully to an issue. Um, then advice I would have for listeners, I think kind of dovetails with what I was saying earlier about getting involved. Um, everyone has a piece that they can contribute. And I've had a lot of friends who've wanted to get involved with um, political advocacy before, but have thought, well, I don't know anything about politics, so I can't do it. But um, there's something for everybody. You have a skill that could contribute really nicely to advocacy, whether it's your personal story, or maybe you're really good at website coding. I'm not sure, but everyone can contribute in some way. So find out what that, that sort of piece is that you can contribute if you're looking to get involved. Yes, we need everyone. Um, Kiara, thank you so much for joining me. I love you. I adore you. I'm so proud of all the work that you're doing. You're amazing. I'm so lucky to like have you in my life in more than just a professional sense. 
Um, and I'm so glad that you were able to join me today. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks for having me. And I'd also like to thank the listeners. If you like what you heard and want to hear more of this show and others like it, you can find the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribes, rates, and reviews are always welcome and appreciated. And if you are a user of social media, you can find us um, at Coastal News 365 on Instagram and Twitter and the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Facebook. And if you'd like to connect with me individually, you can find me at Jenna Valente on Instagram and at Yenna Benna on Twitter. So please find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines. <laughs>